I woke up at 4 a.m. that day in order to get to the florist on time. I got there and I was able to secure the most expensive thing I could afford, which was this massive bouquet of roses. Like this thing was massive, it's huge. And at that time, it cost a whopping 130 bucks or something, which at that time, you know, after inflation, like it's probably like $10,000 at this point. So it was a lot of money back in that time. But I dropped it. I said, you know what? Boom, worth it. That was step one of my plan. Step two was to make it to school before anyone else would get there, which meant, yes, I had to beat the zero period kids. So I got there, had to jump over the fence because it was still closed. And when security saw me, I had to run. Took off my backpack and I unloaded uh, these red and white pages. All of them said the same thing. It said, her name, will you be my Valentine? Love me, my, my name, <laughs> my name. It was cool. I mean, everyone who went to the school who knew me knew this other person. And they're like, oh, that's super cool, super romantic. And I totally shamed all the other men that day. It was awesome. For that brief day, I was a superhero. And then it got even better because I had the bouquet delivered to the school, which meant that she had to be called out of her classroom. And then once she came back to her classroom, she had to carry this massive bouquet of roses with her. And then, of course, everyone in the class, as she tells it, says, oh, you know, everyone's crying and guys are like, whatever. <laughs> it was seriously one of the coolest moments of my life. Um, but if you were just to fast forward eight, 12 months later, you would have seen a very different story because that same relationship with that same person was in shambles. In fact, I recall vividly laying on my bedroom floor and just begging God to take away the pain of the broken relationship. We had broken up time after time, and we had this on again, off again thing. And so we really just got into this nasty, unhealthy relationship. And at the end of it, I hated myself. I did not like her. And I just, I knew I had no one to blame but me. Because really, when it came down to it, I, I ignored everyone's counsel. I didn't I didn't ask my pastor for help. I didn't ask my, my leader for help. I just did it. I just did it. And I knew I was headed for danger because uh, we had this uh, codependency. Uh, maybe, no, it's worse than that. We had this really unhealthy relationship. And so here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. Everything that I've preached up to this point has been me saying, listen to what God's word says. And we're going to do that again tonight. But I also want you to know that part of where this is coming from, some of the passion behind this is that I've experienced things related to this whole scene that you need to hear in part because I've suffered the pain. I don't want my lessons to go off with just me. I want you to learn them as well. The one thing I did not do in this, I mean, I did a lot of things poorly, but one of the things I didn't do was I didn't listen to counsel. I didn't listen to wisdom. I didn't listen to anything that God had to say about the matter. I made all the mistakes you could possibly make and therefore suffered the consequences. So I need you to hear this sermon really closely because this was sermon, this should have been, this should have been the first thing I thought of. Should have been the first thing I, I actually considered before I even allowed myself to date this person. 
this next sermon, we're going to think of like a map. Uh, long ago, we used to use these things called maps that were paper. And you had to use them to discern where you were going in the world. Uh, now you have it on your phone. But just like the map on your phone, if you don't follow the directions, you're going to end up in the wrong place. Uh, and that, that whole uh, thing about follow your heart, you've heard that, right? Follow your heart. Let your heart be your guide. Do, do what your heart tells you to do is the worst advice you could give yourself or anyone else in the world. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. It is wicked. It is corrupt. Even as a Christian, your heart is often wrong, which is why we need something to calibrate us. In the dating relationship of your car, your car dating relationship, you need to follow the directions. And of course, the directions are the word of God. When you follow the directions, you get to the destination, a good destination, a right destination. But when you try to do it yourself and follow your heart and kind of uh, live your own compass out, you're going to end up hurting yourself and the other person almost without fail. Of course, you could say, well, the rare exception, I heard about this one person who did this thing. It wasn't like what you said, Pastor Rod, and their relationship is wonderful now. They are the exception that proves the rule. You know about those rare exceptions because they're so rare. But what we're going to discuss tonight is the way that you as a Christian, if you are in fact one, should think about dating. And really, it's, it's, it's simple, and yet it's profound. We need to be, as Christians, wholly committed, fully committed to a holy dating relationship. Wholly committed to holy dating, if you will. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to let Paul give us some insight and information about how to understand who we are as Christians and how that relates to our dating lives. Now, I got to give you uh, just, you know, a full disclosure here. This text does not specifically talk about dating. Paul's intention for this text is not to say necessarily, you know, don't date this person or that person or do date this person or that person. Paul's intention here is to help the Corinthian church see that they are a different people. They are bought with a price. They are now Christ people and therefore they should live a different life. It's really quite simple. If you're a Christian, you're called to live differently. But the problem was, as he was writing to the Corinthians, they were undergoing a lot of difficulty because they had these associations and partnerships with pagans that Paul was saying, what are you doing? One of their congregants, one of their members was, was dating. He was committing incest. And the church is like, isn't it wonderful that we're so tolerant and gracious toward him that we're not going to say anything about that? And Paul slaps him upside the head and says, what are you doing? Like, this is the church. This is God's temple. Take care of the temple. Let it be pure and holy. Don't boast about your willingness to tolerate sin. Instead, you should fight sin tooth and nail and discipline people that are living in unrighteous lives. When we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul just got done saying, here's who you are in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then he says, uh, we should now live lives not for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised again. So he's trying to make this point here. Corinthian church, understand who you are by nature of your regeneration, your new birth. You're being born again. Now you should live that way. And then he starts talking about the fact that they have these associations, these partnerships with people that are not Christians. What he says is impressive. It's hard so let's listen closely as we read together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, pause for a second. 
Yoking is probably unfamiliar to you. And this is the only time this word appears in the New Testament. Talk about unequally yoking with someone, uh, blending together of two things that don't fit. Uh, Paul, of course, is reaching back into agricultural terminology. It's an analogy. Uh, it's a cross beam that sits on the shoulder of, you know, an ox and another ox. And using that cross beam, uh, they're able to plow uh, a burrow together. They're able to plow together in a straight line. And Paul is saying, don't unequally yoke with something that doesn't fit your identity. So it would be akin to having an ox and a donkey together and putting the crossbeam, the yoke on them, and saying, okay, now try to plow a straight line. Well, of course, it's not going to work because the ox is going to be stronger and have a different gait than the donkey. And so the ox is going to pull this way. The donkey might pull that way. It's just not going to work out. It doesn't fit. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. If you didn't know this, this is actually something that God told the Israelites back in the day in the Old Testament. God told them, you shall not plow with two different types of animals. God's concern isn't so much with the, uh, with the practicality of it, but what it meant, what it pointed to. And what it pointed to was the fact that the ox and the donkey are a picture or a symbol of the kind of associations we should not have. I'm hearing ringing. Do you guys hear that too? Uh, do you want to give me a handheld? Would that help? Because, no? Because that really, Okay. You guys still focusing with me? Able to check? All right. And so Paul says to you and to the Christian church, the Corinthian church, he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And of course, he's saying Christian and unbeliever don't fit. That's his only statement. Okay, that's his only statement. But like five bullet points, he now unpacks that with rhetorical questions to emphasize his point. Read with me. Second part of verse 14, he says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another word for belier, uh, the devil, the evil one. Um, Belial literally means worthless one. And so essentially in verse 15, he's saying, what accord does Christ have with the devil? Implication, none, meant to be answered negatively. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that's the crescendo. That's the big point he wants to make. Look, what can you say is in commonality between God's temple and an idol factory? Those who worship idols. Is there any kind of commonality that you can point to that says, oh, look, they can have union. And Paul's point is, of course they cannot. Why? Look at the second part there where he talks about the idols. It says, for we are the temple of the living God, not idols. Idols are deaf, dumb, and blind. They don't exist. There's demons behind them. But we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so what you have here is Paul saying, look, don't be unequally partnered with unbelievers. Instead, because you're so different, uh, Pursue godliness, pursue holiness, because when you do that, God responds with a positive declaration of you're my people. When you became a Christian, if you are one, you were adopted into God's family. You are now, by nature of what God's done inside of you, you are part of the family of God. You are brothers and sisters in the Lord. God is our father. That's the beauty of what's happening here. And so Paul says, live up to your calling. Don't live a life that compromises your identity in Christ. Now, you might be thinking, well, does that mean I can't talk to unbelievers? I, I mean, there's, there's unbelievers at my church. Uh, there's unbelievers at my school. There's unbelievers at my baseball team. 
No, Paul's not saying that. Paul's not saying don't have any contact with unbelievers. Otherwise, as he would also say later in his book, he says, otherwise you'd have to go out of the world. You'd have to stop being a Christian to not have any contact with unbelievers. He's talking about a very specific kind of partnership here, a spiritual partnership, a kind of partnership with an unbeliever that is intimate and close in its spiritual relational proximity. This requires some discernment, okay? This requires discernment. So you might ask, well, can I have an unbeliever who's a best friend? Guess you could say maybe there's some gray in here because he doesn't say you can't have an unbeliever best friend. But I would say, is your best friend companionship, is that a spiritual thing to you at all? If it is, you're in very dangerous territory. And and in fact, you're probably disobeying the command in this text. Spiritual connections, spiritual enterprises, spiritual endeavors. Paul is saying, don't be unequally yoked with them. That's why he talks about partnership, righteousness, lawlessness, fellowship, cord, Christ and Belial. He's trying to paint a, a very stark picture. Your closest friends and confidants, your closest uh, leaders should be Christians. People that have the greatest influence in your life should be Christians. But when you allow other people who are not Christians to influence your life in a close, intimate kind of way, he says you're being unequally yoked. You're partnering with people that are going to drive you away. In fact, I like the way that this person put it. He says, those who harness themselves together with unbelievers will soon find themselves plowing Satan's fields. It's the nature of how things generally work. Okay, so that's the general picture here. That's what's happening. I said to you that Paul's talking about spiritual enterprises. Okay, pop quiz. You remember we talked about uh, the roles of males and females, guys and girls. We looked at Ephesians chapter 5, and we also said that what Ephesians chapter 5 points out is that marriage is really meant to point to what? Christ and his church. Marriage is a spiritual enterprise. It is a spiritual endeavor, a partnering, a yoking with someone for life. It is very significant, and it is spiritual. So if Paul could obviously be saying here, don't, don't marry an unbeliever, that fits really nicely into the context. But we're just going to take it one step further removed. Point number one, let's say don't date unbelievers. That makes sense, right? If Paul is saying don't, don't marry with them, don't have spiritual enterprises with unbelievers, it's as simple as, as day to say don't date unbelievers. I have experience in this. Personally, I, I, I mean, I thought I was a Christian in high school. You guys know my testimony, at least part of it. I thought I was a Christian, and I, I told you about this gal that I started dating um, that had started well but ended poorly. Not only do I have personal experience with this, but I also have experience from other people's lives. People who, uh, let me just paint a picture here. Guy meets girl. Let's, let's just call him Kyle. Is there a Kyle in here? Sorry, Kyle. We're going to call him Kyle. This is not a real story. This is a template, okay? Just making this up. So if this sounds like you, it's only by the Spirit of God. Kyle meets this girl. He's very involved in his youth ministry. He might play on the worship team and he serves and he's uh, very, uh, he's active in this church. He loves the Lord, but he meets this girl who knocks his socks off. She's beautiful outwardly and inwardly. She's a very nice girl. In fact, she's a good girl by all standards and by all measurements. And get this, the craziest thing of all is that she likes Kyle and she's like way out of his league. And so he's like, man, I am... I am so excited about this girl. She's into me. She's beautiful. She's got everything I could possibly want. Uh, She's not a Christian. But beyond that, everything I could possibly want, she's phenomenal. She knows that he's a believer. 
and she's okay with that. She's willing to accept that. She might even come to church with him. She'd be willing to attend church with him if you know, things work out, things get, they get closer. And so they began to date. They began to have a closer relationship. Kyle, of course, begins to be less involved in the ways that he used to be. Stops taking church as seriously because oh, he, you know, the, his girlfriend's parents said that he could only date her this week on a Wednesday night, so he wasn't able to come to True North. He, he's had, he had to. He cares about this girl. When his leader conf- confronted him and said, Kyle, you're, you're dating an unbeliever. You shouldn't be doing that. What are you doing to yourself? Kyle responded, with, well, listen, listen. If, if I break up with her, what kind of testimony is that showing to her, right? It just shows I don't care about her. I can't do it now. She'd be, she'd be furious and then probably drive her away from Christ and the gospel. So out of love for her, I should keep dating her. <laughs> so Kyle persists in pursuing this girl. And over the course of time, Kyle's compromise and willingness to put Christ aside in order to be with this girl increases. She grows more important to him. Christ grows less important. In his mind, he might be able to see on the road, in the map that we're painting here, on the the road, he's on the freeway that leads to a dead end. It's a dead end. It's going to crash. It's going to burn. There are signs all over that say, caution, warning, stop, turn around. Kyle sees that, but he ignores it because he's so smitten with this girl. You might think I'm being melodramatic or I'm, you know, I'm, being the, I'm doing the Christian youth pastor thing where I'm saying, you don't date unbelievers. I'm not. I'm not. I'm telling you how it works. I, I've, I've been around the block and I've seen the block. I've seen the cars. I've seen how this works. Again, you might think to yourself, well, what about that rare person? They dated an unbeliever. They became a Christian. Okay, fine. You can have that one person. But I'll tell you, the vast majority of people are foolishly walking into relationships and like an ox to the slaughter, they find that they're killing themselves and even not showing love to the person that they're so concerned about. Okay, don't date unbelievers. I mean, really, I don't think it could be any more simple than that. But let's... Let's answer a couple questions. Why not? God gives us five, five answers, okay? Here we go. I'm gonna give you five answers. They're gonna be pretty rapid fire. So have your pen, your pencil ready, whatever you're using. Don't date unbelievers. Why? Well, because God commands it. Let's start with that. God commands it. Do not be unequally yoked with somebody. Becoming a Christian, you understand, is surrendering the driver's seat of your life. Jesus is not in the passenger seat saying, here, take a left, take a right. No, Jesus is driving the car. And the only time that it makes sense to start dating an unbeliever is if you throw Jesus out of the driver's seat, you get in it, and you start saying, I'm going to take this car where I want it to go. Jesus says, don't be unequally yoked. Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd with him to his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I say these not to heavy-handedly tell you, do this, this is the way it's supposed to be, but really to show you this is the clear teaching of Scripture. God calls you to himself and says, I don't want any competitors. You are mine. That's it. And if you want to partake in my salvation, my salvation comes with my lordship. Why not dating, why not date an unbeliever? Well, because God commands this. And of course, we recognize his commands are not burdensome. In fact, Jesus says, take my yoke upon me and learn from you, upon you and learn from me. 
Jesus says, don't put the yoke of slavery on your back. Put my yoke. My burden is easy. The second reason, don't date unbelievers because you live by different rules. You live by different rules. Paul asked the question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? He couldn't be any more clear about the dichotomy here. Your life is captive to the word of God, or at least it should be. That's the goal, right? I, I want to live under his guidance. I don't, I don't want to do things that displease him, but that's not the case with a believer. Even a nice person, they're going to live lives according to their own moral compass. It's not calibrated by God's word. It is calibrated by their own thoughts and desires. In fact, this, the scripture says that an unbeliever is captive to three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are three forces that press upon the life of an unbeliever, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are captive to those things. The third reason. We said the first reason you shouldn't date an unbeliever is because God commands it. The second reason is because you live by different rules, righteousness versus lawlessness, the word of God versus following my own desires. Third is because you have different values. It's not just the rules, the things that you do. It's the things that you most prize and value. Paul asks, what fellowship has light with darkness? And, and it's interesting because these two things are mutually exclusive, right? If you have light, you don't have darkness. If you have darkness, you don't have light. And so Paul is painting a picture again. Look, you can't have good and evil in cooperation together. It doesn't work. Your value, the light, your value is ultimately, if you're a Christian, the glory of God in your life no matter what. That's it. The value of those who walk in darkness is not that. It could be a million other things, but it is not the glory of God and it is not full surrender to Christ. They don't value the same things you value. Fourth reason, not to date an unbeliever because you serve different gods. Because you serve different gods. Paul asks, what accord has Christ with Belial? How does Jesus and the devil, are they friends? Do they work together for the common good? They do not. They are antithetical to one another. You can't combine them. Again, to emphasize this, Christ demands full loyalty and allegiance. If you are a Christian, remind yourself of this. When you sign on the dotted line and say, I want to be a Christian, you willingly signed over the title deed of your life to him and says, whatever you please, that's what I want to do. This is not about hating unbelievers, you understand. This is not about saying they're unworthy of you. This is not about saying they're, you know, they're, oh, they're gross people. This is about saying we want to live lives that are fully pleasing to him, the one who lived and died for us, the one who, for our sake, died and was raised. God commands it. You live by different rules. You have different values. You serve different gods. Number five, because you have different destinations. Paul asks again his rhetorical question. He says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Portion. The word conveys something that is received, an inheritance. Think about this. Christian, when you die, what is your portion? Well, if you're right with God, you die and you see heaven. Christ glorifies your body eventually. We're going to be resurrected, made like him. You will no longer sin. You will no longer live with the fallenness of your flesh. You will be perfected in every way possible. That sounds awesome. That's your portion. Christ is your portion. But think about the unbeliever. Where, what is the portion of the unbeliever? 
If you think about two wildly separate paths, right? The portion of the unbeliever is eternal conscious torment. That's terrible. It's terrible. It's an awful reality. And this is why, Christian, this is why dating an, a non-believer, someone who's not a Christian, is so unloving. It's the worst thing you can do for their soul. Let me tell you why. When you do that, you are subtly implying that they're really not, I mean, that they're okay. They're not that bad with God. You know, God's going to just, you know, look the other way. You're, you're dating them, and you're giving them this sense of confidence. Like, well, hey, he's a Christian, therefore, I must be okay. You know, if he's willing to date me, and I'm not a Christian, but he is, and maybe, my, maybe I'm not so bad with God after all. Otherwise, I don't know if this would even work out. Or maybe he doesn't even really care much about God in the first place. Young lady, if you're considering this young man and he doesn't love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you want to make a point with him, you don't date him and make him feel suddenly like things are okay. Things are not. Unloving to date someone who's a non-Christian. In fact, if I could just be a little more blunt here, dating a non-Christian is telling them that their eternal soul is not as important as your temporary pleasure. You'd have to see them every day. Think about them every day and know in your heart that God calls you to be an evangelist to the unbelievers and you'd have to downplay that. Why not date an unbeliever? God commands it. You live by different rules. You have different values. You serve different gods. You have different destinations. Lastly, because you are the temple, you are the holy temple of God. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about sexual immorality and idolatry, and he says that you are the temple of God. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul now says, it's not only you individually, but you corporately as the church. You are the temple of God. Now, if you're reading the DBR with us, you have a better sense of what he's trying to get at here. Because the temple of God, really the tabernacle, and we're looking at the tent, God demanded perfection, holiness, clean and unclean. Like he would not allow unclean things into his presence. If you had leprosy or some kind of skin disease, you were excluded from the tabernacle. You could not go because you were unclean. You were impure. God demanded perfection in his presence. And only the high priest could enter in the holiest of holies but once a year. Paul now says, think about that tent. Think about the temple. He says, you are now that. The holy of holies is not inside a tent or a temple. You are the holy of holies. God's unmitigated presence resides within you through the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. He says, can the temple of God have uh, uh, God's presence and an idol together? No, obviously. Therefore, live as though you are the holy of holies. Exercise restraint. Be holy. No more sacrifices to offer Jesus as a sacrifice. Therefore, now live in light of that reality. Live according to your new identity. Those are all the compelling reasons that Paul gets for why not to date an unbeliever. Again, I, I need you to understand here, this is not because I don't like unbelievers. We love unbelievers. We want them to come to a knowledge of Christ. We want them to get saved and understand the gospel that we just sang about. But you dating them 
does not accomplish that purpose. In fact, it undermines the very thing we're trying to do here, which is trying to shake them awake and say, you need to be right with God. You need to love him and serve him. Don't date unbelievers. Now, again, this is not a dating text, but there's still more wisdom to, to mine here. Look at verses 17, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, through uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Those are all one unit. Okay, look at verse 17. So he says, I'll make my dwelling among them. I'll walk among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'm going to put you in the family of the church. He says, therefore, in verse 17, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. In other words, Paul is saying, look, look at this great offer that God presents to you to be, to be, uh, for him to be your God and you to be his people. He says, because of that privileged place that God offers you by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, avoid any hint of unholy behavior, anything that would compromise your dedication to God, any hint of sin in your life. He says, get away from that. Run away from that. Go out from their midst, the midst of those who don't confess Christ. Be separate from them. You should look different. You should feel different, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Don't give your life to idolatry. Don't give your mind to things that are going to compromise your, your love and affection, the pure devotion to Christ. It says, then, then, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And this is interesting because it, what, what we're seeing here is that closeness with God requires personal holiness. Closeness with God requires personal holiness. You can't have a close relationship with God and not be a holy person. Blessed are those who, uh, who are peacemakers. You have that whole, uh, Matthew chapter 5, the whole section about the kind of people we are. If you go through that list, they're humble, contrite, holy people. Paul reiterates it and says, using a, a lot of Old Testament texts, look, if you're holy, God will receive you. It's not that you're, you don't lose your salvation. You don't lose your salvation. This is not one of those things. It's more about, look, if you want to experience God as your father, if you want to experience the beauty of knowing God and loving him, he says, be separate from sin. Live a holy and righteous life. Fight sin, and you will experience what it is to be in Christ, to love him and to live for him. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. You'll have a close relationship with God. Verse 7, Paul emphasizes it with an exclamation mark. He says, since we have these promises of God's faithfulness to us, his relationship, his comfort to us, he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion. Let your sanctification bring forth perfect holiness. Will you ever get there in this life? No, but eventually you will. God himself will do that. But he says, in the meantime, you should be trying to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That is the Christian life in a nutshell. This is how we think about life. This is how we examine ourselves. So let me try to simplify here. We said this first thing is Paul saying, don't engage in spiritual enterprises with unbelievers. The second part is now, instead of that, act in these ways. Think these ways, do these ways, do these things, and God will welcome you. You'll experience a greater relationship with God. The first point was don't date unbelievers. The second point is date like a Christian. Date like a Christian. 
This is a Christian mindset, a Christian lifestyle. Now we're going to apply that to our dating life. Someone says you drive like a grandma. That's not a compliment, right? Drive like a grandma. But I heard someone say recently, he's a, like a, a, t- a tactical survivor, survival person. He tells you how to live in case the zombie apocalypse comes. And so I was listening to the podcast, and he was saying, look, one of the best ways to, to drive is like a grandma. Podcast host says, well, why? He says, you're going to avoid uh, accidents and altercations with other drivers. And he says, other drivers are really crazy. They'll shoot you and kill you. You don't want that. So drive like a grandma, he says. Grandmas drive usually well below the speed limit, like, like un, in an ungodly amount, like 20 miles per hour, grandma, and there's like a 50 mile per hour zone. It's dangerous, but okay, driving below the speed limit. Grandma, when she drives, she, she signals her intention, usually well before the actual turn. Sometimes she throws her arm out just to be doubly sure. She wears her seatbelt course, right, before she gets in there, wears the seatbelt, has both hands on the wheel, and she might even wear those wraparound sunglasses, you know, that all the grandmas wear, the cool ones, like they're massive, they go around your whole face. <laughs> That's when you know you've made it, right? I'm going to get me some of those glasses, <laughs> massive. There's probably wisdom in driving like a grandma. Drive like a grandma, date like a Christian. See, stay below the relational speed limit. Don't go faster than you should. Signal your intention with the person that you're dating. That's kind and respectful. Take safety precautions before you drive your relationship car over a cliff. Be in control of the relationship, not out of control, uh, having your emotions run the course. You see the parallel here? Drive like a grandma, date like a Christian. What is a Christian date like? How is a Christian supposed to do that? Well, we're looking at this text here. How do we fit this understand this in light of our dating life, well, uh, here are three things, and they're going to be big things, uh, and I have a lot to say here. Bear with me. What is a Christian date like? Number one, they date with purity, okay, with purity. Paul says, go out from among them, separate yourselves, don't touch things that are going to make you unclean. So Christians date with purity. It's comprehensive. It's not just one thing in their lives. This is their entire lives, but specifically in relation to dating. Think about this. What's your purpose in life? Glorify God. And in dating specifically, you're gauging for marriage. If you're dating just for fun, I wonder if you understand dating at all. Uh, Okay, I know that might might ruffle feathers, but purpose in dating is to glorify God, ultimately. But I would put a strong second is gauging for marriage. If you're dating just because you like having fun together, I'm concerned. I can't say that it's necessarily sin, but I would say that's really unwise if you're just dating for fun. Now, that's one thing to, to say that it's another like, hey, we're going to Wofo together or we're just hanging out. Like, okay, fine. Um, maybe there's, there's a way that you can go out together as friends and it's, there's no pressure, that kind of thing. But if you're dating someone, glory of God, gauging for marriage. That's a pure way to think about this. And I didn't say this last week, but let me, let me say this once more, uh, at least for, for you to hear this. When you think about who to date as a Christian, the, the, the measuring rod to know whether or not they're a good fit is, does this person help me glorify God better? When you're thinking about, should I date him? Should I take her out? Does this person help me glorify God better? And if you can't feel good about that, then you probably should reconsider whether or not that's the person to ask out in the first place. A person that you're wanting to date should be equally yoked. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, they should be the same species of animal, but how about this? What if you have a, a, a nine-year-old ox and a baby ox? Same species, 
But is it wise to put them together under the same yoke? No. You should be around the same, you know, spiritual age. You should be going the same direction. You should be running together or walking together, as the case may be, whatever your maturity is. Does this person help me glorify God better? When we talk about purity in your relationship, let's do the after-school special thing, and let's talk about this here. Let's briefly talk about sexual purity. Now, obviously, sexual purity is a non like it's a non-starter kind of thing. This is the, the obvious one. But let me tell you about some of the things I've experienced as a, as a pastor dealing with situations like this, okay? Rare is it that I have a Christian student like yourself who's professing, and I get into a relationship with someone and like really kind of manipulate the situation to, to have that relationship with that person, okay? It happens accidentally and over the course of time. And there's little lines that are moved forward and forward and forward until finally they're compromising in ways that they never thought they would ever do. So resolving to be sexually pure in your relationship has got to be more than just saying, yeah, I, I want to be sexually pure. You know, it's got to be something that you fight for. Now, we're going to talk more about what that is. But even now, let, let me just throw this out here. When you talk about this, you need to be wise and say, okay, we're not going to be alone. We're not going to be in cars. We're not going to be in dark rooms at night. No, we're not going to be hanging out past like 8 o'clock or something. You, you need to be thoughtful about this. This is a powerful drive in the human species. This is what God put in us. This desire has a righteous expression, but it's not in the dating relationship. But here's another thing you might struggle with. If you're resolving to be pure and holy before the Lord, one of the things you must not do is redefine the word sex. You can't use the word and say, well, it only means this and this, the physical act that you all know that I'm referring to. No, see, Sex is, 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 there's a lot of areas, right? We had our, our, one of our presidents say, I didn't have that relationship with that woman because there was this other area that wasn't technically that. That's not what a Christian does. If you're asking yourself the question, how far can I go without being sinful? You're asking the wrong question. Define sin as sin. If you're gonna have a pure relationship, this is what a Christian dates like, we define sin as sin. Fondling is sin. All forms of sex are sex. Purity. I, I need to make a quick point here. If, if you are presently struggling with masturbation and pornography, you're probably not at a place where you should be dating. I mean, you're in a stage, I mean, where you're, you're giving yourself to something so impure, so ungodly, so unhelpful, that even considering dating right now should probably not be on your radar if your parents even allow for you to do that. I'm not saying you have to be perfect to date somebody. I'm not saying that you need to have all of your life put together in perfect form. I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that the, the trajectory of your life, the character of your person, your spiritual caliber is not immature, ungodly, impure, unholy young person. Dating someone is a big deal. It's not marriage, but it matters. And if you're going to take your life the way that Paul says, where he says, go out from their midst, be separate, touch no unclean thing, be holy. That means that you need to apply that same mindset to the way that you look at dating. So young man, if you're doing, if you're looking at porn and you're masturbating, then maybe this conversation isn't for you. Maybe you need to talk to your leader tonight and say, you know what, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's get real about one of the real issues that we have. I mean, that's one category of sin. I'm not saying that's the only one, but there's others. There's others, right? And if that's the issue, then you probably shouldn't think about dating right now. 
Young lady, the same thing's true for you. If that's part of your life, it's probably not a good idea for you to consider dating. You have a skewed understanding of relationships, a skewed understanding of physicality. That's not helpful. Instead, pursue holiness, pursue uh, sanctification, pursue dedication and devotion to the Lord. What is a Christian date like? Well, the first, they date with purity. The second, they date with wisdom. I, I like that Paul talks about the, the, the church. It's, it's subtle, and he's quoting a lot of Old Testament texts here, but he says, look, you know, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. You'll, you'll, you'll be my sons and daughters. I'll be your father. So you're having a, a hint at what the church is, uh, God bringing us together to make us his holy, separate people. When think about wisdom, it's tapping into the wisdom of those people that God has put in your life. So that would include your parents, your small group leaders, of course, your pastors. I would consider me to be part of that. But these are the people that God has placed in your life who can see the world around you better than you can see. Now, you might be cooler than your pastor or your leader, certainly, than your pastor. You might be cooler than your parents. You might be fully aware of all the latest memes. You know all the lingo. You're cooler than most people your age or above your age. Fine. But what we generally have, people who are older than you, above and beyond where you are, is wisdom. Wisdom. And you would do well to say, Mom, Dad, I need your wisdom. Leader, I need your wisdom. I need you to help me see things that I can't see. I need you to direct me to do things that I otherwise would not do. When I was a kid, I, I used to listen. Uh, a kid, like middle school, maybe early high school, I used to listen to love, love songs, oldie love songs, like Michael Jackson and Marvin Gaye. and I mean, just Motown, Motown. You guys know what Motown is? I used to listen to that stuff. And one time I was listening to it in my room and my dad heard it. And my dad got upset at me. He's like, turn that off. And I thought he was just being old. Like, okay, I'll go to lower. Uh, but he ended up coming upstairs to me and says, you know what, son? I don't want you listening to love songs right now. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> Good music, Motown. And he said, it's not the right time for you. You should not be filling your mind with content like that when it's not the right time for you to exercise those things. Now, at the time, I was furious. I'm like, this is good music. It's wholesome. There's a lot of other worse things I could be listening to on the radio. I'm trying to listen to Jackson 5 and Marvin Gaye, and you're saying no. And I was so mad. But it came to realize that he was right. In fact, the Song of Solomon says this. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, there's a right time to begin to stir up affection and love for others, especially romantic love. And probably for most of you, that's not the right time. Probably. This is your pastor just speaking from a place of, I think, wisdom. It's probably not the right time for most of you. But you need your help. You need help on that. You need help. You need your parents to speak to this. You need your leaders to speak to this. You need the people around you who know you best to tell you, is it the right time for you to pursue a relationship with someone? Or even just to date, to learn what it looks like to treat a woman or to treat a man. Your leaders can see, hey, you know what that person you're dating? I, doesn't seem like a good person. Doesn't seem like a good fit. Your parents will be able to see things that you can't see. And they'll see the way that Johnny, when he, brings, when he comes home and he visits and he's getting to know your parents, they'll see the way that Johnny talks to his mom or the way that he does or doesn't do certain things. Like parents just have that radar to see. So do your leaders. Of course, your parents have your vested interest, a vested interest in your success. And one of, the, one of the challenges for you, young person, is it's easy for you to think that your parents know a lot less than they do your parents, your leaders, these old people, um, don't do that. Don't think that way. Of course, when we talk about wisdom, we can't not talk about accountability. You need to build boundaries in your relationship. Speed bumps, if you will. 
I seek counsel and guidance. You need accountability for how you talk to one another. Some of the things you probably should not be texting to each other are things like, I love you, I'll die for you. You You're my one and only. The things that some people can tend to say when you're in a serious relationship. So not the things that are helpful to guard the other person's heart, certainly not your own. How does a Christian date? Well, they date with purity, they date with wisdom, and they date, lastly, with the fear of God. With the fear of God. Let me remind you what verse, chapter 7, verse 1 says. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And then you notice it's cleanse yourselves, right? Let us cleanse ourselves. There's something on you, for you to do here. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement, everything that would stain or taint our spiritual lives, every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This last point has to do with the way that you treat and think about the other person. Because you fear God, you should respect the other person. Because you fear God, you should care about the other person, guarding them, protecting them. As I already alluded to, sexual morality is a big deal. I want you to jot down 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. In fact, you're going to go through this question tonight, I hope, in your small groups. Uh, But the idea here, I'll read it to you. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. If you give yourself to immorality in that arena, what you're doing is inviting the wrath of God, who is an avenger of those things. When you give yourself to that, it's not like God is turning away as as if God doesn't see sex. God sees it. He knows He knows when the person is being manipulated. He knows when a young man is taken advantage. He knows when a girl is trying to be flirtatious and lead him into sin. Fearing God means, young men, that you care about guarding this young woman. It means that you are trying hard not to lead her on. You're not uh, not telling her that you're her savior. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. I'll do the things for you. Young lady, it means that you, because you fear God, that you are aware and cautious that you are not leading him on in unhelpful ways. You're not dressing in overly provocative ways. You're not trying to uh, gain and garner more attention from young men because of the way that you dress or what you post. You're thoughtful about this. Not because God's a curmudgeon who doesn't like fashion, because you love your brothers, care about your sisters, and you fear God. Doesn't mean you can't be cute. I've said this already. You can dress cute, dress beautifully, but it doesn't have to be provocative respecting one another out of a fear of God, which I I said this the last time, but let me just say it once more. Having a fear of God means that when you break up, when you break up, because that's the likelihood, if and when it happens, um, first of all, don't blame God. Don't don't go to the person and say, hey, God told me to break up with you. (laughs) Take responsibility. Do it. You do do it. I don't think it's a wise thing for us to be together. I'd like to break up. Don't do it over DM or text. Don't film a TikTok video breaking up with her. I mean, here's another tough one. If the person that you happen to have been dating is in the church, don't leave. It's going to be awkward, but don't leave. Stay here. 
Stay involved, stay connected. Don't leave. Why? Because you fear God. Be honest, be gracious, be forgiving, be thankful, be thoughtful, be friends eventually. These are all the things that are wrapped up with I fear God and so I need to respect and, and love this person that I'm trying to date. If you are in fact dating. I want to guard their sexual purity. I want to guard mine. I'm going to guard their heart. I fear God. I want to see that they're doing right. Okay, two last things and then we're going we're gonna to close here. Um, singleness, okay? Some of you guys are single. Um, not by choice. Some of you are single by choice, whatever camp you fall in. Uh, let me encourage you, singleness is a good thing. Paul was single. Jesus was single. Jesus never married, and yet he was the most manly, the most full, uh, fully realized person ever, okay? Jesus was single. Paul was single. Nothing wrong with singleness. As I said at the beginning of our, of our series, you're probably called to be married for the most part. That's most of you. But if you're single... Enjoy the season. Glorify God in the season. If you're single, recognize God has placed you here, whether it's because your parents are telling you or whether because no one has said yes to your asking out yet. Whatever the reason, God wants you there. Maximize this season of life. Don't let it go to waste. In fact, that's my second thing I want to bring up. Whether you are dating, not dating, or will be dating in the future, you should be preparing now. Okay? You should be preparing now. Read books about how to be a godly man, dudes. Read books that call you to be more than just an adolescent who plays 17 hours of whatever a day. The young ladies, don't squander your time on social media trying to get the perfect picture. Spend time looking at the word of God that will give you the inward beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay. We had four weeks in this series, guys and gals. First week, we talked about relationships engendered, that they're God's design, and we should follow his instructions for maximum enjoyment in them. Be a man, be a woman, and enjoy that. Enjoy that. You were designed for that. God wants you to do that. He wants you to embrace your role as a man or a woman and to be pleased with that. The week after, we talked about the fact that uh, when we have sinful desires, whether it's uh, a gender identity issue or whether it's lust for someone or something, uh, we need to realize that those sinful desires need to be submitted to God's word. We renounce them, we reject them. If you have gender identity issues, renounce it, reject it, confess it to God, and await future deliverance from Jesus. That's the Christian life. We all have to put our sin to death. All of us, not just the gender confused. Everybody has to put their sin to death and follow after the Lord. Last week, we talked about your relationship goals. Your relationship goals should look forward to and echo marital roles. Men, you should be the kind of men who are sacrificial, leading. You're taking charge and, and initiating things that are good, but not for you, for the good of others. Ladies, what that means for you is that you're trying to practice godly submission by submitting to your father and the people that God has placed in your life. Ultimately, all of this is meant to help us love Christ better. We do that by not dating unbelievers. We date like Christians, and ultimately, we give glory to God. Guys and girls, in a nutshell, let's pray. Mm -hmm.